following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. But we have to appreciate how challenging it is to change. There's a, I think it's a book actually, and I wish I could remember the title and the author, but I can't. But I remember the basic idea, which is, through many studies, they found how generally it's impossible, or almost impossible, to change. I mean, there's, in short terms, you can get quite dramatic changes in behavior, like, I want to change my eating habits, so we do. You can be comfortable there? There's a cushion here, and I think there's a couple, too. Certainly the one up front, if you want, and one over here, too. Mm-hmm. We can get a temporary change in our actions or behaviors, but then you know how that is. We tend to swing back. So, like we might feel inspired by mindfulness and and really push and get some results and just notice that we're more mindful in life, more present, have a steady sit, maybe have some experiences of feeling relatively tranquil in our meditation, some continuity of mindfulness in our meditation sits. But then we might swing the other way. And it's like, just can't make ourselves sit. No matter how much good we experience while doing it, you just can't make yourself do it. So um, as we get interested in the practice, it's really important to have a very long-term attitude about developing the practice and about making it part of our life, letting it sink in, don't be so dis, uh, disturbed by these short-term swings where we get really enthused and then we get really, whatever, negative about it. But taking a big, long-term view, you know, it doesn't matter if we have to take two steps back because we know we'll take three steps forward next week or next month, maybe a step back, three steps forward, four steps back, ten steps forward, one step back. And what really supports this is, and this is, in Buddhism, this is really what we mean by the dawning of wisdom. The dawning of wisdom is as, is when our mind begins to be able to discern the difference between what is skillful and what is unskillful. And this is not in any sort of judgmental sense. When the mind discerns what is skillful, it is seen directly looking at the mind, the mind looking at the mind, you know, the mind looking at its conditioned habits, for, for example. And the mind is seeing that these conditioned habits have the tendency to lead to release, to the ease of the heart, to a sense of lightness, a sense of space, a sense of belonging and calm and insight, seeing what we haven't seen before about the mind, about the nature of things. And unskillful is defined by those conditioned habits of mind which tend to lead to contracted states, heavy states, diluted states, reactive states where we tend to harm ourselves and other people. So, mostly, you know, an ordinary human, as an ordinary human being, we tend to move through life... And we tend to be either oblivious 
to the relevance of what's skillful or, or unskillful. It's like it doesn't occur to us to be discerning what's going on in the heart and mind in terms of what it leads to, like leads to ease or leads to contraction. And even if it does occur to us to discern that, we're not discerning it carefully enough. So what we think is skillful actually leads to contracted state. What we think is unskillful might actually lead to release. We're just mixed up about what's actually skillful and unskillful. So initially what mindfulness reveals is some things are skillful and some things aren't skillful. Some qualities of the mind, some conditioned habits of the mind are skillful and some aren't skillful. And it's not personal. Like when you do something and trigger a lot of defensiveness in me, and I discern, I see that defensive reaction in my mind. It's not personal. It's like when somebody acts in this way, or when I think in this way, then I feel defensive. And the important thing is, does the mind recognize that when the mind gets identified with that defensive attitude, that things go badly, things get tight, things get heavy. I make mistakes. I act in ways that cause myself and others harm. And then maybe I'm around somebody who's really spacious and wise, and I'm inspired. It's like a sympathetic vibration. You know, I start to feel more spacious and wise, and I notice that's skillful. I notice like how much, how much more easy it is to be skillful, to be relating and responding in ways that lead to the release of the heart the release of the body, the release of tension in the mind, body. <coughs> so this is a tremendous gift. It's like, from a Buddhist point of view, there's really nothing worse than going through life and being unaware of the difference between what is skillful and unskillful. We see this in our friends sometimes, right? Where they're completely blind. They think they're pursuing happiness, but it's like, we know. We're just they're driving over a cliff. And it doesn't matter what we say to them because we can't help them see they're just, their mind has all the certain uh, defensive patterns to avoid seeing clearly what's going on. And all we can do is hope that some, at some point the pain of their actions will wake them up and they'll kind of start connecting the dots. Oh, seeing things in this way, acting in this way, leads to unwholesome results that really hurt. And, by the way, cause other people a lot of hurt. So we know that that's possible, basically driving through life blind. It's like we have these dreams. I don't know about you, but I have these nightmares sometimes. I mean, they're not really bad nightmares, and mostly they don't happen so much anymore, but it's like an archetypal nightmare to be like driving and the steering wheel doesn't work or you can't see or some version of driving blind. Have you had that? Some of you are nodding. It's pretty common, I think, because I think it really points out this experience of here we are living in this complicated, ambiguous, messy world, life that we have, and if we don't have this moral compass, this basic moral compass, and I don't mean morality in sort of some absolute sense. I mean pragmatic morality. What way of being, what way of relating 
actually leads to the release of the heart. Which way of being, relating, actually leads to more complications, more stress, more weight, more difficulty. And we have this appropriate, that's an appropriate fear that we're driving blind. So as we begin, you know, just through waking up in life, whether you're doing a formal Buddhist meditation practice or not, doesn't matter. What matters is, are you waking up? And in that waking up process, you'll notice a kind of gratitude and respect for this discerning process. It's like, oh, I get, I'm beginning to get how it works, how this thing we call happiness and unhappiness works. You know, when I do this, when I relate in this way, when I get identified with these kinds of mind states, this is what happens. When I relate in this other way, when I get identified with these other kinds of mind states, this other thing happens. And, you know, in a really basic Buddhist sense, when we have wrong view, which means self-centered view, self-centered drama, taking things personally, that is the root of suffering from a Buddhist point of view. When the view, the understanding of the heart or mind is relatively free of self-view, the sense of separation, the identification with the idea of separation, the fixation on being apart. When we're free of that, that's the root of being skillful and free and happy in life. Now, it doesn't actually, it helps a little bit to hear this, but what really helps, really changes our life, is to wake up to this, like to actually see this being played out in our lives. When we're really caught up, taking things really personally, Everything somebody does, you know, how they look at us, what they say to us, feels very personal. Even our own mind we take very personally, like, my mind is so dull, and it's a personal problem that I can't be more quick, more clear, more whatever. When we take things very personally, we personally suffer a lot. When the mind isn't so obsessed, caught up in the self-view, things are lighter, Things work better, the mind is more nimble and creative in how it responds to the different conditions of the moment. Now, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't help just to hear that. What helps is to see that. And in order to see it, we have to be mindful. And that's why we do this formal training. That's why we set aside 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 10 minutes or an hour every day to develop, to, to plant the seeds of mindfulness, to develop the momentum of mindfulness in our lives so we can be mindful more and more throughout the day. Because when we're mindful, by definition, mindfulness allows for this discernment between what's skillful and unskillful. And that discernment slowly reveals the essence of unskillfulness is self-centered attachment. And the essence of skillfulness is the absence of self-centered attachment, not taking things personally. But again, the words aren't so helpful. Because we all kind of, each of us right now, when we hear that, you know, the absence of self-centered attachment, we're all going to interpret that in a particular way based on our way our mind's conditioned. 
the key, the only thing that really changes things is to know directly, experientially, what it is for the mind or heart to be relatively or mostly free of its self-centered drama in a moment and to see directly how liberating that is when the mind isn't so obsessed, so caught up in self-view. How easy it is to be loving and compassionate and patient and forgiving and funny and joyful when we're not so caught up in self-view. And how difficult it is to be a useful, functional, happy human being when we are caught up in self-view. So even if we're trying to be funny, it's because we need people to like us, you know? And that doesn't work very well, maybe for a few comedians whose neurotic energy is funny. But when you start noticing, like when you're actually present with those comedians, you really want to help them, (laughs) you know? A lot of times, you know, what we call humor is just uh, like a running from the pain in our lives. And if we settle a little bit, we realize we don't want to laugh, we want to cry, or we want to take care of each other, because that's really what needs to happen. So I wanted to set that up a little bit. It really answers the question, and this was part of the handout uh, from last week, why meditate? We want to meditate because we don't clearly understand how this whole thing works. We're still, each of us to some degree, myself included, driving blind. And so we want to wake up so that we understand how it works, like how it is that happiness unfolds and how it is that states of suffering and dis-ease unfold for us. To get the lay of the land, to see how it works, and to begin to to distill the underlying principles Like, how is it that happiness, freedom, ease, wisdom, and compassion, how is it that that arises? You know, and like I said, to really begin to see how, oh, it's all about the underlying view. And like, whenever we notice suffering, we always will see, because we're being mindful, how when there's suffering, there is this wrong view. There is some kind of contracted self-view going on. Just go ahead, try to suffer this week, without a contracted self-view being present. You can't. Nor can you be happy with a contracted self-view. Because just relating, experiencing life from a very contracted sense of self is itself suffering. You can't be happy when you're feeling apart. There's me, there's all of you. That sense of alienation is itself the sort of essence, foundation of all the other expressions of suffering or stress. And this this is like an insight we need to grow all life long. And you see, it doesn't matter whether we're making so-called mistakes and acting unskillfully or being successful and acting skillfully. What matters, are we learning? So if we're unskillful, are we learning from it? Are we seeing, are we distilling like how that unskillfulness is leading to pain and suffering and how it's unfolding? Like, what is that dynamic and learning from it? Then it doesn't matter if we make mistakes. As long as we're learning from them, we're less likely to do it in the future. 
the worst thing is to make mistakes and not realize we're making mistakes. You know, to be acting out of self-view and being impatient out of self-view and being mean out of self-view and being manipulative and controlling and fearful and retreating and hiding and numbing out, all out of self-view, but not realize what's happening. So there's no learning. And then we just tend to do it more and more because we've reinforced it. So it's mindfulness that allows us to see how it all works. And then that's it. We don't even need to change. Mindfulness itself will lead to the change. When we start to see things clearly, change just happens. The proximate cause for change and transformation is seeing things as they are. The proximate cause to keep doing what we've always done is to not see things any differently than we've always seen them. If we always see things the same way, we're going to keep doing things the same way. If we see things with new eyes, then we'll change. Now, the new eyes means instead of being scattered or distracted or superficial, the mind is going to be steady and clear and calm. That's, those are the qualities we're strengthening in the meditation practice. Steadiness, the sort of unwavering of present moment attention. I talked last week about not forgetting the present moment. So whether you're working with the breath or whatever object you're knowing in the moment, the real work of meditation is not forgetting this is being known. It's not so important what's being known. So don't worry about distractions. If you're going to worry about anything, ask yourself, is the mind aware that the mind is knowing this now? So it's, it's that self or that reflectiveness. The mind is reflecting, oh, it's like this. This is what's being known. This is what the mind is doing. This is how the mind is. This is what's being known. And it's that and that steadiness, the unwavering of that, the, the interest that sustains that present moment awareness, and the calm, the relaxation that helps us understand, helps us realize that the mind isn't rea- reacting. So the only way we know we're cultivating right view as we're practicing, doing our meditation, is whether we're relaxed. Otherwise, if the body or mind is tight, you can bet that we're reacting in some way. We're struggling in some way. Now, of course, it's very common for us to be tight and struggling. But the practice is to remember, not just to be aware that, oh, this is being known, but to be inviting a relaxation of the body and mind. Well, can this be okay? In other words, would it be okay for the body to relax with whatever it is that's being known in the moment? Would it be okay for the mind to relax? To just let it be? To allow it to be? Because right now, it's already this way, right? So, can that be okay that it's this way? So, any questions before we stretch our legs and do a sit tonight? This is just a general introduction. During the sit, I'll give some more specific instructions. Any questions about what I've said thus far? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
in the instructions, there, there are a couple of handouts for the first week. One was um, a set of meditation instructions that you could read, like before a sit, to remind yourself. And in, there are many ways to practice, but in that particular set of instructions, it was uh, you were invited to name. So you don't have to say, breathing in is being known. You could just say, breathing in. And if you notice that the mind is thinking, you could just say, in your mind, thinking. Because just, just uh, bringing up a label, a note, a mental note, that names that. Because in order to name what the mind is knowing, you, the mind has to know what it's knowing. That's the important thing, that the mind knows that it's knowing. That's, in a sense, the definition of mindfulness. The mind knows what it's knowing. So that's the present momentness of the practice. The mind has to know that this is being known in order to be in the present moment. Because we can have, you and I could sit down and have a conversation, but be not really there knowing that we're sitting, knowing that I'm thinking this, knowing that I'm feeling this, knowing that I'm saying this, knowing that I'm hearing this. We could be sort of doing it on automatic pilot. So much of our life is on automatic pilot. And the only way we train the mind not to be an automatic pilot is we're sustaining that reflection. Oh, this is what's being done. Now, I use that word or those words a lot, but that doesn't mean you have to keep saying that in your mind. It's really that activity of reflecting. The mind is knowing that this is what's being known. It's really the activity of not forgetting. That's really the work. You're not trying to make something happen, like a particular experience happen. You're trying to remember, oh, this is being known. This is what's happening. This is how it is. Just this, or just this being known. So it's... You know, you're just going to have to experiment. You don't actually need to use any words in your mind. But when you're finding it difficult to be present, experimenting with right thought, like using thought that's in the service of reminding the mind to know it's like this, can be quite useful. So you're actually using phrases or words that trigger, remind the mind to recognize, oh, oh yeah, it is like this. This is being known. The mind is thinking. And it's like this. Or the mind is seeing. And seeing is like this. The mind is hearing Mark's voice. And hearing Mark's voice is like this. The mind is knowing the sensation of sitting. And the experience of sitting is like this. You see how it just brings us right into the moment. That recognition. Because the present moment is defined... The most obvious thing in the present moment is that this is being known. I think I mentioned this last week. And everything, our whole life, is just something being known. Right? Whether we understand this completely or not, the whole world is just something being known in the mind. Here's some chairs at the end, even though they have a sign that says to say for people with special needs. They're, they're available. Thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts before we sit? And there will be time for questions after we sit. In fact, it would be really nice to hear from people about your practice this week and tonight after we sit. But why don't we stand and stretch your legs out?
and open the window a little. That's a good sign. And then whenever you feel ready, you can sit down. Now, as you come into your sitting posture, you want to sit in a stable way, whether you're on a chair or on the floor. You can have one leg in front of the other. That's, for some people, an easy way. You can do the one ankle under the knee, each ankle under the knee. You can have the quarter lotus with the top of the foot on the calf, or the half lotus with the top of the foot on the thigh. And I don't sit this way, but you can do the full lotus with both feet on top of the thighs. I can't really do that very well, but you get the idea for those of you who are really flexible. Or you can also kneel, and I'll just demonstrate that briefly. So you can take a cushion or one of the benches in the closet, you put it upright. And you can elevate that if that's not high enough. And for people who don't have a lot of flexibility in their hips, but want to sit on the floor, kneeling can be a good way. The benches basically do the same thing, and we have a number of benches in the closet. If you're in the chair, as I mentioned before the class, you can elevate the floor if you're short so your feet are flat, or elevate your seat if you're tall so you have a right angle with your knees. Generally, we don't cross your legs because we want to create a real stable posture. And then over time... Eliminate the need for the back of the chair if you're healthy, if your back is healthy, if you can. But just use as much as, it, as you need. But generally, over-reliance in the back of the chair leads to sleepiness. So especially if you're having trouble with sleepiness in your meditation, then wean yourself off of the back of the chair. Support your lumbar with a cushion, but keep the upper back away. And you might find that just the effort to be upright keeps the mind awake up. And the last thing I'll say about city practice is it's always challenging. So don't worry. Don't try to have the perfect posture because you won't find it. The body, like life, is messy. And uh, that's just how it is. So you just do the best you can. You take the first few seconds as you're settling in, listen to your body, make adjustments, and then... Uh, and then, as best you can, you hold still. And when pain starts to arise, you just practice with it. You can just stay with your object of meditation. But when the pain gets strong enough, then let the pain be your meditation object. But when you can't be with the pain skillfully, then very quietly make an adjustment. Even when you're sitting alone, quietly make an adjustment. Don't do it in a quick way. Be really thoughtful and mindful and aware of how it is as you stretch out the leg or make an adjustment to your spine. Then settle back into stillness when you can. Okay, so we'll just listen to our body. Find a stable posture. And let's take a half dozen deep, easy breaths in and out. Slowly filling the lungs, slowly emptying the lungs, as if you have all the time in the world to fill and empty the lungs. Using the deep breathing to shift gears, 
going beyond our habits of rushing. So one or two more breaths. And whenever you finish with the next exhalation, allow the breathing to continue on its own. to hearing the effort to remember hearing is like this. Allowing all the sounds to come and go. learning how to relax and be present with the experience of hearing. interested in the continuity of mindfulness, the sustained present moment awareness with hearing, or just more generally with the present moment. So we can practice now, feel the body sitting, just this great ocean of physical sensations that are coming and going. The full range, so both the unpleasant sensations in the body and all the neutral and pleasant sensations, everything's included. In a sense, sitting right in the middle 
aware of the body sitting. Breathing in, feeling the body just as it is. Exhaling, letting the body be. interested in these two qualities, being interested or alert, and being relaxed. And if you'd like to coordinate with the breath, with each in-breath you can remember the quality of alertness or interest. And with each exhalation you can Use the exhalation to remind you of the quality of relaxation or trusting experience. And if you want to use a meditation word, you could repeat the word seeing clearly as you breathe in. And you could repeat the words or word releasing or letting go as you exhale. generally with the sensations of the body, breathing in, seeing clearly or knowing the sensations, exhaling, releasing any attachment, any struggling. Or you could be aware more specifically of the breath itself. So breathing in, being interested and alert to the breath, exhaling, trusting and letting the breath be. Finally, even if the mind gets distracted, breathing in, knowing the distraction as it actually is, being interested, oh, it's like this, exhaling, relaxing, trusting that whatever the distraction is, it will come and go on its own. Let's continue in silence now for a while.
be willing to begin again and again. No need to judge, no need to be frustrated. Remembering the field of breath of the body in and of itself, the actual sensations.
Remember, thoughts are just thoughts. To be angry at the thoughts just creates tension in the mind. Instead, simply recognize that thoughts are just thoughts being known. Don't give up. Just keep recognizing, oh, it's just thoughts being known. Just thoughts being known. Notice the seductiveness. Notice the tendency to get identified with the thoughts. In other words, that they're stressful. The mind gets tight because of the identification. So notice all of that, moment by moment by moment, until there aren't so many thoughts. And they come back to the breath, they come back to the sensations of the body, and simply be aware of the breath coming in, the breath going out,
noticing the kind of view that the mind is operating from. Strong sense of self. Or a more spacious, open attitude. Does the experience of the body and mind feel very personal? Or does it seem that it's simply the movement of nature, impersonal causes and conditions? Just notice the attitude. What, if anything, is in the way of acceptance? gesture if you'd like. Just a gesture of gratitude for the practice. Take your time, adjust your body as you need to. about what they're experiencing, the problems that have been arising, what's felt like success in terms of calming the body and mind, in terms of seeing things you haven't seen before. It's always good to hear this. And then, of course, any questions that you have. If you decide to speak up, please say your name nice and loud so everyone can hear you. So any comments or questions? Yes. I thought this one was better. And that's what we did. 
Yeah, the, what we discover is that uh, that a lot of the strategies that are out there about controlling stress, they're too superficial because the way to really address stress is to understand the underlying causes of stress. The underlying cause of stress is wrong view. So I could go at my stress with wrong view. God damn it. Let go of stress, you know. But that doesn't, that isn't the cause for stress to be released, to be angry at the stress. So instead, what we do is we cultivate an awareness, a simple but clear presence. And what that does is it reveals the underlying causes for happiness and for unhappiness. So instead of thinking, I know the way, I know how to fix my life, and then going at it with the personality that I have, whatever your particular personality is, maybe some of you tend towards being the victim, some of you tend towards being type A, like you were saying, but we go at the project with our personality, we always do the same thing, we always get the same results. So we have to change And the way we change is we transform the uh, quality of awareness so that the mind is seeing things differently from superficiality to seeing things. Like in Buddhism, we say seeing things as they are. This is what we mean by dharma or dhamma. This is where you hear a lot in Buddhist circles. It means, in part, it means seeing things as they are. When we see things as they are, then... We see, because seeing things as they are means we're seeing things in terms of cause and effect or the interdependent relationship of all things. Then it's possible to act skillfully in ways that release stress because the mind is seeing how it is that it's creating stress for itself. Without that seeing, there's no releasing of stress. It's just, you know, basically... Meeting stress with stress. Other thoughts for your practice? Yeah. Say your name. My name is Glenn. Um, I've been experimenting with positions and without being tired of falling asleep, I've been practicing meditation with lines of mind versus sitting upright. We talked about beneficial or better in mind. Yeah. Well, we want to practice in all four postures. Lying down, sitting, walking, and standing. And each one has its own particular sort of flavor and advantage and disadvantage. Obviously, lying down, the disadvantage is falling asleep. Um, The advantage is, part of the practice is learning to relax and trust. And that's relatively easy when we're lying down. If you're going to practice lying down, I recommend using savasana, the corpse pose, for those of you who know yoga, Legs comfortably apart, arms comfortably to the side. A lot of people need a little pillow under their head so that there's a nice alignment of the spine. And uh, you can practice with your eye open. You can also have your elbow on the ground with your hand at a 90 degree, or your arm rather, forearm at a 90 degree angle. That way if you fall asleep, the arm will fall, and that can wake you up. That can be nice to have that. And... Um, You can also practice on your right side. So a pillow under your head, 
and the body relatively straight with the left arm on top of the body and the left leg on top of the, the right leg. So just lying on your right side. That's called the lion's pose. And uh, so what I find, and most people who do a lying down meditation find, that it can be quite useful for 5, 10, 15, maybe even up to 20 minutes. But unless you're, you've really developed a lot of brightness in your meditation practice, that it's relatively easy for the mind to maintain that alertness, that after a certain amount of time, the mind inevitably falls into too much tranquility and then unconsciousness. We have such a, a deep habit of not paying attention when we're lying down. So that tendency to, to drift and to let the attention do whatever it wants to do, it just goes hand in hand with the prone position. So you have to really make sure that the mind knows what it's doing, knows that it's aware, that it's, it's being asked to be aware that it's like this now, that not forgetting. But otherwise, you know, the practice really isn't that much different. The advantage of walking practice, and I'll talk more about this next week, is that it's a very obvious anchor. The physicality of walking is relatively easy to know because it's like big. Whereas the breath, for example, can get quite subtle as we become more relaxed. And it it can be even a little difficult, like, is is the body breathing or not? Because it's so subtle. But it's pretty obvious when we're walking, even if the mind is pretty relaxed, you know, we feel the lifting, we feel the moving of the leg forward, we feel the coming down, we feel that contact, that pressure as the weight comes onto that leg. We feel the lifting, we feel the moving, the coming down, the pressing. So walking makes a very clear anchor, and this is a nice practice if your mind is quite wild or crazy, a lot of drama, a lot of stuff bouncing around from the day, then you might want to start with some walking practice because it's like relatively easy to ask the attention to know the walking and to be uh, to have a continuity of awareness with the walking. So I encourage you to experiment. I mean, primarily sitting is nice because most people, not everybody, find, you know, just as a, a daily practice that sitting is a good way to do that because we're moving about so much during the day that just to sit still generally feels good. And you should be sitting in a way that's relatively comfortable. Now, like I said at the beginning, it's not going to be perfectly comfortable for most of you. But it will be comfortable enough. And if it's not, don't be shy to use a chair. There's nothing wrong with practicing in a chair. Not a big, comfortable chair, but like a kitchen chair. You know, and you, like I, maybe I mentioned last week, you can elevate the back legs of the chair, tilt the chair forward, and that way, you don't need the back of the chair as much. In the same way that, like, I'm sitting on the front half of my cushion, so my pelvis is tilted down from my point of view. And that makes it easier for my knees to get closer to the ground. It creates a nice base of support. Thanks for your question. Yeah. Say your name. Um, nice and loud, Christine. harder even to try to find 
I really appreciate your sharing and useful comments. So she was saying that uh, the first thing, her first comment was that she, the more she started practicing, she's been practicing for a couple of months now, the more she realized what a torrent her mind, her life was. And this makes sense. If we become mindful, we're going to notice how crazy it is, internally, externally. So that's a sign. That's actually a good sign. Like there's a mindfulness imposes an honesty. We actually see how it is. And if the mind is all over the place, then being mindful means we experience the mind being all over the place. Because mindfulness simply knows it's like this. So we do see that, and it can be quite disconcerting, actually. It's sort of funny, maybe even paradoxical, that on the one hand, the continuity of mindfulness leads to a lot of tranquility, stability, and ease. But on the other hand, as you explained, it, it can lead to this feeling of being overwhelmed and, and how crazy it all is. And then your other comment was just about having a hard time finding the time. And I think uh, where that comes from is as we see all that movement, and not to be judgmental about it, just call it movement, you know, the wild movement of the mind, of life. One of the things that we recognize is how easy it is to cause suffering for ourselves or others. Like, when the mind is moving, being pushed around, it's relatively superficial, it's relatively distracted, it's hard to be skillful, it's easy to make mistakes. And those mistakes, like saying the wrong thing, at the wrong time to somebody, they can have long-term repercussions. Relationships can fall apart or you know, pain can arise that takes forever to make amends or to fix. So this sense of urgency arises in the mind, uh, in the heart. I really need to do something. I care about this life and I don't want to cause myself or others suffering. So this is what we call wholesome motivation. We need to find that because, like I said, there's a lot of inertia. So if we're going to actually put aside 30 minutes, when we could be doing anything, we could be eating, we could be watching TV, we could be talking to our friends, there are so many things that might be exciting, you know, or important. So you see, what a profound thing it is for a creature like us. We're just a creature, just an animal like any other. And for this period of time, we're putting aside all of our basic survival needs. So as a social being, 
we're putting aside all of our interactions. You know, that, that's what social beings do. They interact. They kind of build relationships, repair relationships, seek out relationships. As a physical being, we put aside eating, seeking food, seeking wealth. We'll put aside all that basic survival stuff. No wonder it's difficult. But if we don't do that, we miss this opportunity for a deeper kind of learning. And basically we're condemned, literally condemned, to just keep doing what we've always done and getting what we've always got from life. So if we're going to change, we have to do this thing. And that's that. That's why we need that motivation. Seeing how much we are just being swept along by the flood. On Monday night, we are... We have a Buddhist studies class where people have been practicing for a while, and uh, we're studying the ten paramis. It's called the ten perfections of the heart. And these are the qualities, I mean, the pretty obvious qualities, like loving kindness and wisdom and truthfulness and resoluteness and energy and patience and generosity and renunciation. A couple others that I'm forgetting. And... Uh, these ten qualities are defined by those qualities of mind that help us from being swept away by the flood, right? The flood of our mind, this movement you were talking about. So, we get motivated. When we see that flood, we get motivated. What can I do to stabilize the mind? What can I do to get some clarity about what's going on here? And we get motivated. And slowly, or, you know, Somehow, the practice gets to the top of the to-do list. And that's why a lot of people practice in the morning, because we understand that once the day gets started, it's like we get swept away. And then all of a sudden, it's 10 o'clock at night or whatever. And uh, our minds are already fried, and all we can do is sort of, you know, stare. And so, we're not really good for much at that point. So, a lot of people... Make it the first thing they do in the morning. Now, I know that's hard, because often people aren't getting enough sleep. Well, you need to get enough sleep so you can get up and be relatively refreshed. And before you turn on the radio, before you do, check your email, you, you know, brush your teeth or do whatever you do, and then you sit down. And you, you practice being with your mind. Now, some people really aren't morning people, and that just won't work. And that's fine. You just find another time to do it. But you have to be strategic in this way because, like you're suggesting, it's very easy. Even though you understand how useful it's been, it's very easy to keep putting it off. So you want you want to um, have a dramatic story that's based on facts. How easy it is to start your life and only, in a sense, to wake up. There you are on your deathbed, now wishing you had cultivated some real wisdom, some real understanding, some real tranquility, or any kind of crisis moment. Then it's too late, you know, when you're there with your loved one who's dying, your mom or dad or whomever, or your own death, or any other difficult time, a divorce, a a loss of a job, wishing that you had the spaciousness of mind the perspective, the wisdom. But it's still good to start then, 
that it would, be, would have been much better to have started 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Because somebody said once, you know, the best time to plant a tree is, you know, a long time ago. The second best time is now. <laughs> you know, given that we didn't plant it then, let's do the practice now. Thanks. Time for a couple more. Yeah, say your name. Um, I just started meditating last Tuesday class, and I would describe it as kind of a zoo of forces and chaos in my mind. Um, it's not exactly enjoyable. Um, so I was just kind of wondering if you could reflect a little bit on what it's like for you, or maybe I imagine it is kind of like getting in shape, and getting in shape is really terrible, but then you get in shape and it feels good even though it's still hard. Yeah, it's a really good question. Now, it's surprising that people don't ask, ask that question more often. Like, what actually am I going to get from this? <laughs> but it's, that's exactly the way we think, so we should ask questions in that way. You know, it's being real. Like, what do you get from this? Is it worth it? Because there is a lot, there are a lot of other things we could be doing with our time. And it is difficult initially in practice. Not for everybody. Some people really take to it uh, fast. But that doesn't mean it will stay that way. There are a lot of different cycles in practice. But one of the, now I'm just finishing, I think, uh, 31 years now I've been practicing, almost every day. So, a lot of continuity, a lot of regular regularity with my practice, and a lot of retreat practice too, so that where the conditions are optimal, where you can practice more intensively for periods of time. And uh, now, my mind is still all over the place a lot of the time. But there, when my mind is doing whatever it's doing, there's also recognizable this sense of peace. Or it's literally like space, like a sense of space or perspective or silence or peace or stillness that's very obvious, discernible, most, almost all the time, even in daily life, even when I'm not sitting in meditation. And so even though my mind may go down corridors that it shouldn't go down and worry about this or complain about this or lust after that, there's, it's that activity, that neurotic activity, let's call it, is happening in this vast space. Now you can just, just as a metaphor, you can think of two things. You can think about the mind being really frightened or really lustful or really needy and happening in a very small space. So then that neurotic activity relative to the space in the mind is huge. In fact, it's the whole space of the mind. And then you can imagine that neurotic activity happening in this very, very, very big space. Well, it's not such a big deal that there's this little neurotic activity, because the big deal is all this open space. So that's a nice way to think about how the practice unfolds. There still may be neurotic activity. Maybe it doesn't happen as often. Maybe it isn't as seductive. But part of the reason it doesn't happen as often or isn't as seductive is that the mind is aware of space, or stillness, or silence, or peace. And it's unforgettable. It's like hard to forget it after a while. Even 
though there might be something seductive going on. And the thing is, even if my mind really goes down an avenue that's tight, pretty soon the tightness really stands out because the mind knows the experience of relaxation and peace. Then when it gets in a tight place and I'm really angry, it just like begs the question, honey, why are we doing this? Do you really need to do this? And it very quickly pops, like a little bubble pops. And then, and then it's like, uh, oh yeah, I don't really need to be angry. I don't really need to think that my life will be happier if I do this renovation at home. Doesn't mean I won't do the renovation, but that contraction that, oh, I can't wait, it'll be so nice. It's like, oh no, it's kind of nice now. And that's the thing about inner peace or inner stillness, or inner space, is that it allows for a contentedness no matter the conditions that are coming and going in our life. So we're less neurotically dependent on conditions being a certain way because it's already okay. Even, you know, being on the proverbial deathbed or having a toothache or feeling pain of humiliation... There's, if there's a sense of space that makes it okay, this is a yucky thing happening in this vast, empty, alive, vibrant moment. Yeah. I'm Doug. I, uh, I've been practicing for two years, and you were asking about uh, what kind of reactions you get. Well, after a year I was practicing... I was with my wife, and we were talking about my practice, and she wasn't very happy about it. And uh, she's sitting right here. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, have you noticed anything? And I'm like, she's like, yeah. You're, you're calmer. So calm, it's scary. <laughs> and then it was a couple weeks later, she hit the wrong button, and, you know, when you pay on the Internet, they can, you know, we were all suddenly, like, incredibly in debt, and she's panicking. I'm like, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Oh, but, you know, these buttons and all that. And all of a sudden, from up in the computer room, I go, who are you, and what did you do with my husband? <laughs> so you, you get this calm. You, everything just kind of, how I put it is, I feel like I'm gliding through life a lot easier now than before. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I was just going to say, one thing I really noticed, my name's Tawny, um, was that five minutes into it, I would feel pain. Mm-hmm. You know, part of my body. And so then I would pay attention to it and be with it. And, um, and then it would move to another part of my body. It was just funny how it kind of just went from one place to another. So it was almost like everything was, it was almost like the sensation, everything was a phantom pain. It really yeah. wasn't real. Yeah. And then the minute you put your, the minute I put my attention on it, it would move someplace else. And I just thought that was remarkable. There are many remarkable discoveries. And they all tend to have a particular flavor, which is so much of our reality is being constructed by the mind itself. What we take to be true is a construction. And it can be constructed any number of ways. And that's very interesting. That's part of this, this deepening insight about how fluid everything is, how ephemeral everything is. It only feels solid and real and like this because we're not paying close attention. 
But this is true also with the body. Even the experience of the body generally, the more settled, steady the attention is, the more light and uh, um, undefined the experience of the body is. Like We have this idea of the body, and it's not so easy for us initially to separate the image or idea of the body from the actual experience of the body. And you might notice, like if you're paying attention to the breath, you might notice that actually what you're doing is you're watching a video in your mind of its interpretation of the breath. You're actually picturing the breath coming in, going out. But that's not the sensations of the breath. You know, the actual feeling, that movement of the abdominal wall expanding and contracting, or the actual sensations of touching as the air goes in and out of the nostrils. So, so much of what we take things to be is just our ideas and not the actual experience. Yeah, so it's a, it's really amazing to develop the practice. Now, partly what's amazing is how boring it is at times. I don't want to say that it's never boring. That's amazing too. This is life. Why does it feel so dead? Why does it feel so boring? And we should just assume that there's something not being seen. It's like, when we have an idea in our mind, a very strong, big, hairy idea that is boring, then if that's all we're seeing, it's boring. But it's hard to see through that idea into life as it actually is. Like somebody once said, you know, if we're bored, it means we're not paying attention. There's life, the, the things as they are, it's not boring. Maybe one or two more comments with somebody over here that had a... Yeah. I had an interesting experience tonight. Normally, my what comes up for me or what distracts me is either physical pain or form of anxiety. And tonight, for the first half, it was physical fatigue. And I noticed myself in this kind of... My name is Kyle, by the way. And, uh, and it, it was kind of this, these two characters playing it out. One was... Oh, it feel really nice just to kind of dress up right now, and I should allow myself that compassion. That there's no, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't do that. Be aware with your eyes. Uh, and once I kind of realized what it was, just the battle, you know, and I was playing one character, then I was playing the other character, and I was able to kind of step back and, and you know, your metaphor about the, the space, and it's just like this is just one thing going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard another good metaphor. It's like instead of being the different chess pieces, like I became more of the chess board. It's like, okay, I don't have to focus on these two little characters having their drama over here. I can go back to to see what else is going on. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. That's a great point. Great teaching about taking that step back. So instead of feeling like Kyle had to resolve that dynamic, the mind, the heart can step back and see, oh, there is that dynamic and it's being known. And it changes everything. How many problems seem like we have to address them? Like the problem, even something small like the pain in our knees seems like a problem we have to address or the being too hot or being too cold or whatever it might be. But there's always this other move which is to step back and to know that things are ambiguous or to know there is a problem and it's being known. That it's just like this and it's being known. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. That's an important point. 
One more? Yeah. Over here. That's the heart of the practice. Non-attachment to the difficult, unpleasant states that come. Non-attachment to the pleasant, beautiful states that come in our lives in our, and, and in our sits. But the interesting thing is, by releasing attachment, fixation, struggle with the difficult, we realize that they come and go on their own. Difficult states come and go on their own. And hating them doesn't help them come and go. Hating them is just adding another contraction on top of what's already difficult. Non-attachment with the pleasant actually is a, a layering of something beautiful on top of what's already beautiful. It still will change. Beautiful experiences by nature come and go. But wanting them to stay is to spoil something that's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's ephemeral. You're having a beautiful moment with your partner. You're outside. It's beautiful weather. You're having a beautiful experience in your body. But it's ephemeral. Wanting it to last ruins that one moment you do have or those moments you do have. But if we relate to it knowing that it's going to come and go, allowing it to come and go, that attitude is itself beautiful. I mean, in a very real way, being mindful is beautiful. It's a beautiful state. And actually, mindfulness is beautiful regardless of what mindfulness is knowing. If there's pain in the body and, the, and there's this beautiful mindfulness, the pain is still unpleasant. But the mind state is beautiful. And this is such an interesting dynamic to be relating to experience in a beautiful way, but to experience that's unpleasant. This is a way to relate to unpleasant experience, and it's a beautiful way to relate to beautiful experience. So try this the next time you're having a pleasant moment. Bring up your practice. So remember, the practice basically is to be relaxed and clear and to know this is being now. So you're having a really nice interaction. You're feeling a lot of feelings of gratitude or, or just joy being around a friend, let's say grateful for this person in your life. And now there's an awareness that gratitude is like this. Happiness, joy is like this. Well, why wouldn't we want to be aware that joy and gratitude or any of these beautiful qualities are like this? It doesn't spoil it. It actually allows for a more complete flowering or blossoming of those wholesome qualities. They won't last forever, but we'll see the potential of those beautiful qualities because we're present. The mind is present. And it's hands off. It's just letting that natural expansion of those beautiful qualities of mind to sort of fulfill themselves until something else happens. But it is, there's a deep instinct to want to hold on to the good, that sort of miserly, stingy, it's my good feeling. But you know, we've ruined so many beautiful moments wanting to take a picture of it so we can have it, you know? 
in all our little ways. That's nine o'clock, so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words, take a breath together. Feeling at home in the body, at home with the mind, whatever particular attitude is there now, you just understand that it's like this, it's okay. And we can be grateful for all the women, all the men through the centuries that practiced, did their practice, they had busy lives like we do, and they kept doing the best they could, practicing realizing some benefit from the practice, sharing it to the next generation. And one generation after another, these wonderful teachings have been passed down. So practical, so useful. So let's do our role, our part. This is our generation, our time to practice, so that we can model being wise and mindful and compassionate in life. And hopefully inspire other people, the next generation. So may this be so. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.